Romans chapter 5, if you take your Bible and join me today, Romans chapter number 5. For the past few years, we have become very familiar, in fact, more familiar than we would like to be, with the word pandemic. It is a word that um, we hear all the time, but obviously, while it may be newer to us, I mean, we're familiar with the word, we just have, have never had its frequency used in our day. It certainly is not a new word to mankind, nor is the, the idea of a pandemic itself. I, I did a little cursory research. In fact, the first uh, recorded pandemic occurred in, in BC. It, it occurred, you know, many, many years ago. There's not a lot of information about it, but there was this, this record of this widespread illness that took the lives of several. The one that we have more information about, the first one actually happened 541 AD. It's probably the first recorded instance of the bubonic plague. The number of deaths from this first outbreak, again, are not exactly known, but it is known that it was significant. The lives of thousands upon thousands were lost. The second outbreak of bubonic plague took place in 1350. And here it is said to have caused the death of one third of the world's population. The estimates of the numbers of lost lives are staggering. And then the third outbreak of bubonic plague in pandemic fashion was 1855. And here it's claimed to have taken at least 15 million lives. That, that might even pale in comparison in 1918. The Spanish flu, this was an avian-born flu. It resulted in what many believe to be around 50 million deaths. That's 1918. Some estimates are actually as high as 200 million lives lost from this widespread global pandemic. It's interesting that a plague, a pandemic, it always begins somewhere with someone, and then it passes itself on. As devastating as those pandemics are, and even the more recent pandemic that we've experienced, there is one that is more devastating still. It has a 100% infection rate, and all of mankind has been exposed. There's only one who did not contract the virus at birth, although as mankind watched the plot unfold, even this one died, not because he was infected, but because by his death, he would provide the only vaccination mankind could ever truly know to live. And this plague has affected us all. People of every tribe and kindred and nation and tongue, young and old, the kind and gentle as well as the rough and uncaring, the wealthy and the poor alike, all will ultimately succumb. The second century poet James Shirley said it this way, the glories of our birth and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against fate. Death lays his icy hands on kings. 
scepter and crown must tumble down and in the dust be equal made with the poor crooked scythe and spade. What he's saying is this pandemic is ruthless. This virus touches all and for mankind, since this was introduced into the world, there has been absolutely none that could evade its impact. Mankind continues to ask the question that comes from this widespread, 100% impactful pandemic, why must everyone die? The young and the old, some at the beginning of life, others at the end of many years. Why did my child die, my wife, my father, my friend? These are important questions, obviously, and the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, is about to provide not just some possible answers, but the very keys to life and death. Now, in the passage we're about to read, we're going to see something that is what many people have said is unparalleled. In fact, while there are many mountain peaks in Scripture, there are several that believe the passage of Scripture before us is one of the primary, if not the highest, of the scriptural peaks. They also say this, and this is interesting, many commentators, many theologians say that this passage of Scripture, when you just break it down and try to walk through every part and every piece, is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to fully understand, to fully grasp. In fact, most of them say, as the heavens are higher, and as there are certainly some unsearchable things, and, and as we do today see through a glass darkly, this is one of those passages that, that we may not fully understand or, or more fully grasp until that dark glass is lifted and we see our Savior teacher, Jesus Christ, face to face. I, I believe that this passage also sets somewhat of a precedent for some other passages we'll actually come upon throughout the book of Romans. And then one other thing that takes place here is they say it's almost as if the Apostle Paul, the human author, the pen that the Holy Spirit used to write these words, it's almost as if he was in one of those situations where well, let's put it like this. Have you ever had someone so excited about sharing something with you that you had to say, hey, slow down? Okay, wait, 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 wait. And they say, no, no, I have to wait just a minute. Take a deep breath and then start to tell me. They say it's almost as if this torrent of truth is pouring forth from the Apostle Paul, but potentially making it somewhat more difficult to translate because there is so much that is overflowing his heart that he wants to get these truths to the listeners as quickly and as powerfully as possible. So we're about to read this passage of scripture. There's a couple things that I hope you'll take note of. In fact, if you circle or underline recurring words and themes in scripture, these may be some that you'd like to underline or circle as we go through this passage. The, the first word that you're gonna notice, and it just keeps coming up over and over again, the 10 verses that we're gonna look at in, in this passage, the word one is going to come up 12 times in this little brief section of Scripture. And then now in the chapter, it's used five times, but in this little passage of Scripture we're looking at, the, the two-word expression, much more, 
much more. Okay, there's something that's a lot, that, that this is abounding, but there's something that's actually going to be much more than the more. So you'll see that expression in our passage three times referred to, and it's also one of those key or very significant passages of Scripture. So let's look at it. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse number 12 and read all the way 10 verses, read all the way through verse number 21. Here's what the Bible says. Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. In other words, it wasn't reckoned the same way. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is the, this is very important, who is the figure, the type, the illustration of him that was to come? But not as the offense, so also is the gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For... As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the, the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Today the passage is going to present to us what we'll refer to as two Adams. Two Adams. Now, now not Adam as in some molecular structure, but, but two Adams as in the first Adam and then the second Adam. 
The other thing we're going to see as we study this passage of Scripture, look into its truths, we're going to see that it is a study of types, and, and there is some illustration of, of Adam being the first type, but it's not necessarily this, this type of the same or this illustration of, hey, I'm illustrating the, the same person that's coming. It's almost this study in contrasts. While there certainly was this, this idea of Adam and his impact on all, and Jesus, his impact on the world, there is also some sense of what took place with Adam now becomes this opposite of what takes place by Christ Jesus. For, for example, Adam came and was from the earth. Jesus came and was from heaven. Adam was tempted in a beautiful garden. Jesus was tempted in the ruggedness of the wilderness. Adam was a thief. He took from a tree that he was told not to take from. Adam was a thief in a beautiful garden. He took what was not rightfully his and he was cast out of paradise. How interesting that Jesus actually turned to a thief. And told him, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, we read, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam, a living soul, but because of sin, he died. The second Adam came not just as a living soul, but as a quickening spirit or one who restores life or the one who actually makes alive. The Old Testament, just to, to kind of summarize these contrasts of comparisons, in the Old Testament, it is the book of the generations of Adam, Genesis 5.1. And it ends with, at the very end of the Old Testament, it ends in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, with a curse the New Testament begins, Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 22, verse number three, we find that because of Jesus Christ, he's actually the one who resolves so that there is no more curse potential for any who find themselves in him. In our study in Romans, Paul's already built quite a case regarding the fact that we're all sinners but now he starts to go beyond to answer two questions. The first thing that he answers is, how did we become sinners? And next, how can I become anything else? And the answers to these very important questions are found in two Adams. We're going to see that the Bible does present these two, and, and they are both these representative heads of the entire human race. And by the way, let me just say this as a, a brief aside. Some have hypothesized that Adam is not a real person. He's just illustrative. He, he, he didn't really exist. He's, he's just some helpful illustration of mankind. I would submit to you that not only is Adam a real person, but Scripture and the second Adam necessitates that the first one was as real as the second. And, and the manner with which the Bible makes these two comparisons, if you don't have a real first Adam, you also don't have a real second Adam, Jesus Christ. So as we're speaking, we're speaking from the book of beginnings, from the book of Genesis, and we're understanding that Adam was indeed not just an illustration, although his humanity provides that. 
Adam is an actual real person. So let's look at this first Adam as presented to us in Scripture. In that book of beginnings, Genesis, Adam is given, have you ever thought about this before? Adam was given only one thou shalt not. Okay, have you ever, have you ever kind of loaded your kids down with rules before they head out the house? Okay, hey, 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 come here. Okay, number one, number two, number, and we kind of go through the list of. Or they know sometimes the family rules. Okay, these are the family things that are really important to us, and this is what we do, and this is what we don't do. And, and more often than not, the list of what we don't do is a lot longer than the list of what we do. Adam is told, listen, just enjoy the garden, and it's yours. And there was only one thou shalt not. For everything else, Adam is told, enjoy, freely enjoy. Do you know, I think sometimes we give people the wrong impression of Almighty God, that God is just this God of thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But the Bible even records for us that even today, God has given us all of his creation to freely enjoy. Enjoy, yes, in the, in the bounds or in the context of our obedience to him. But don't think that a God is just this God of thou shalt not. He gave Adam one, and this was his responsibility wherein he failed. Genesis 2, beginning in verse number 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, thou shalt not. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, why is it important to note this? It's important because God gave Adam a thou shalt not. And do you know what that one singular command does? That one singular command actually separates man from God. Now let me ask you this. Does God have any thou shalt nots? Is there anything that God is commanded not to do? Do you know God has, has no commands? God has no thou shalt nots. Do you know what God is guarded and protected by? Do you know what drives his I don't do and I do? The thing that protects God, that, that directs God, that, that guides and, 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 and orders all of his doings, it is the very nature and character of God. Let me ask you this, where do you land and where do I land if I am guarded and guided only by my nature and my character? I, I can just be as honest with you about me as you could be with me about yourself. Do you know if the only thing that I have to, to guide me is my own nature and my own character, I will find that I stray far from God. But God gave to mankind one distinction between God and man. And do you know why man continually resists the thou shalt nots? Well, Satan used it. In the first temptation, what is it that appeals to Eve? Well, the fruit, it's, it's, it's good to the eyes, um, and it may provide some benefit to me, and, oh, what's that? I shall be like God. Do you know one of the great appeals for mankind is that we can be our own God? Hey, how many of you don't like being told what to do? Anybody particularly like it? 
Like, oh, I just like it when people tell me what to, do you know, we have this natural, uh, something straightens in our spine when someone says, hey, don't do. Even by nature, what is it that we do? If you see a sign that says, keep off the grass, what do you want to do with your foot? We're wicked people. Okay, how about this? If you see a sign that says wet paint, how many of you have ever touched the paint when it says, how many of you have ever touched it when it says wet paint? Look at this pack of, of you know, wickedness right here in our midst. Why do we touch the sign that says wet paint? We say, well, it's probably dry by now. It's just because we want to see and we don't want someone telling us what not to do. Keep out. Uh, private property. Have you ever come upon a road that you're walking upon? I mean, okay, full transparency again. We were just recently on vacation. We're staying in North Carolina. We're, we're, we're just kind of off in the woods and, and I'm walking along this beautiful, you know, I mean, just country road and you get to a point on the road where there's a gate that is open, although there are a few signs that say private property, keep out. What did I do? None of your business. So you know when you, <laughs> you start to think about Oh, I don't, I don't like being told no. Why? Well, because I like being my own God. And what is it that separates God from man? It is God's ability to say, no, thou shalt not. Some have argued that that's not fair. Well, it really has, has no, no connection. This is not a matter of fairness or not fairness. Sometimes we're a little bugged when we're, we believe, we perceive we're not treated fairly. For example, can a child say when they're told it's time for you to go to bed, can a child or does a child ever say, that's not fair. Why do I have to go to bed and you don't? Now what they don't usually know is the parent is saying, I would like to go to bed and you, okay, so that's how most parents are thinking, but, but is it fair? If a parent says, you go to bed, that's not fair. It's really not a matter of fairness. In fact, I would encourage you not to, to, to imply that this is a matter of fairness. It's not always fair that an employer would tell an employee, you need to do this. Well, why don't you do? That's really not the issue. You know, sometimes we strive to drive this matter of fairness so deeply. And I think one of the reasons is, is because I want to be my own end of story. I want to be the, my own master of my fate. So don't tell me what to do. And in fact, if you're telling me what to do, I'm saying that's not fair. Remember, God has no rules for himself. It's not fair. It is the, the right way it is because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The first Adam rejected God's only rule. And because of his one act of sin, sin is passed upon all men. That's Romans 5.12. The Bible tells us, interestingly and importantly to note, the Bible tells us that sin entered into the world. And it doesn't use the plural sins. It just says sin. It's not talking necessarily about the individual acts. It is now talking about our very nature. Our nature produces our acts. And because God made us a procreating race, our nature is passed down to all men. The Jews, by the way, understood very clearly this idea of a corporate head. 
In fact, Paul's going to rely on this national or corporate view when we get to, to some more complex passages of Scripture later on in the book of Romans. He's going to help us understand there are some things collectively that we're looking at here. The Jews saw themselves as part of a family, part of a tribe, part of a nation. And God so often works through units, through nations, through tribes, through families. We're connected with one another. John Donne wrote these well-known lines. In fact, we, we typically know the last line and maybe not necessarily understand what is that line specifically in reference to. Listen to the context of for whom the bell tolls. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a piece of earth be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Any man's death, listen, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. When I start to understand the significance of what Adam did actually has severe implications for me, I start to understand for whom the bell tolls. So when, when one person dies, oh, for whom does that bell ring? Well, actually, it's ringing for me. This has both positive and negative connotations. Remember, God was prepared to spare Sodom. He's prepared to, to spare this city that you and I, even today, look at as the pinnacle of wickedness, Sodom. And God will actually spare a city if he finds in that city 10 representative heads. Just 10 that are righteous and thereby God declares the city the same. By the presence of the 10. That has profound implications for us today. You start to think about the reality of the nation that we're living in. The world that we are now a part of. And, and what is it that withholds the, 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 the punishing, judgmental hand of Almighty God? Could it be the presence of the righteous in the midst of the godless? So once again, we understand we are all born under the curse of sin from the first Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as, all, for, is an, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, we're all in Adam, who is again our representative head. Adam both contained us. In other words, every person who's ever been born was contained within Adam. And he also represents us. There is something of a seminal head and something of a federal head found in the person of Adam. So when he sinned as our representative and us being in him, both literally and figuratively, we understand that death passed upon all men. And when Adam sinned, he introduced to his race, although unborn, the deadly virus of sin. If the story ends here, we are of all men most miserable. Look, if you will, in your Bibles at, at 1 Corinthians 15. Hold your place in Romans chapter 5. 
But look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look with me down, if you would, at verse number 21. Here the Bible records the following. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so how does death come? Why is this plague upon every man? Well, it came by mankind. Man's sin passed it upon all mankind. But that's not the end of the story. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting that Jesus, the second Adam, had to come born as a man. He was born of a virgin to escape the the nature of the first Adam, but was born under the law to become the corporate, the representative head of all who would trust in him. While the first Adam brought me the debt of sin and death, the second Adam came bringing me the free gift of eternal life. Look in your Bible now back at Romans chapter 5. Look down at verse number 15. Romans chapter 5. Look down at verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the more beautiful words. I think if you circle every wonderful word in this passage, you, you have a big circle around the, around the passage. But what wonderful words. So also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. The second Adam offers so much more than what I lost in the first. Look what he brought as a free gift. And by the way, the word's free gift here, it's one Greek word. It's the word charisma. And that word is different than just um, a simple gift. This word carries the idea that it is received with absolutely no merit whatsoever involved. Well, what is it that happened? Think about what, it, what was accomplished because of the substitutionary death of the second Adam. Well, the first thing, I'm released from my bankruptcy. I mean, I'm bankrupt, and there is absolutely no possibility of me resolving that debt. I'm always going to be in debt on my own. But the Bible says in verse 15, For if through the offense of one many be dead much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. What happened to mankind through the sin of Adam was catastrophic. The bankruptcy so great we could never come to terms. But through the free gift of grace provided by the second Adam, my bankruptcy is resolved. What else? Well, I'm free from blame. No one now No one can say, hey, hey, I'm going to attach this to him. No, my debt completely nailed to the cross. And now my blame completely resolved. Romans 15, the end of verse number 16. For the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Justification means I've been declared righteous. No one can any longer attach to me blame. And what else? I'm I'm free from bondage. Look at verse number 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, 
much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. This one who came to set the captive free not only looses me from my bondage, but he says, now come and sit next to me and reign with me by Christ Jesus. What an incredible change of position occurs when a person comes to accept the gift offered by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. I went from being bankrupt and blamed and in bondage to sin to being free and not only free, but I am a joint heir with Christ. I will reign with him throughout all eternity. What an incredible change in my position. And all of this is provided free of charge. It comes only by those which receive the abundance of grace, this gift of righteousness. When you and I begin to comprehend the magnitude of the change that took place from the first Adam to the second Adam, we, begun, we also begin to understand the magnitude of overwhelming gratitude that would pour forth from one, for example, like a John Newton, as he writes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We, we can understand the words, begin to approach the words now when one writes, my chains are gone. I've been set free for God, my Savior, hath pardoned me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. All of mankind was universally born into the family of the first Adam. At the very first occurrence of man's sin, God was giving us a glimpse into the way of salvation. This isn't something that, that God just like, well, what are we going to do now? And finally concocts a plan over hundreds and thousands. No, 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 no. This was a plan that God understood from the very beginning. And he illustrates it for us. So Adam and Eve sinned. Now they are no longer covered in the holiness of the glory of God. And they realize something about their condition. We are naked, guilty, and ashamed. And they tried to hide themselves from God. God, of course, so patiently calls them to himself. And what is it that God does now as this additional picture, not just this picture contrasting the first Adam from the second Adam, but now God actually early on illustrating the coming of the second Adam. Well, well he takes presumably a sheep. He takes an animal and its blood is shed. It's an innocent animal. It's done nothing to offend. It, it, it caused no threat. It brought no harm. But the animal now becomes this very first of the shedding of blood. I suspect quite well that Adam and Eve, who, who had been at peace with the animals of the created world, were witness to the fact that life was lost and blood was shed. You and I still understand today that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
And so blood was shed. And then beyond that, not only was the blood shed, but now there is a covering made. Wouldn't it be interesting if it is in fact a lamb that was slain and a covering provided to, to actually now cover up their nakedness, their, the, the fact that I am so exposed and, and what can I do? I could try to cover myself and they did so quite poorly. And so God makes a fitting, suitable covering. How significant this is when, 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 when Abraham takes his only son, Isaac, raises the knife to the sky and is prepared to bring it down when God stops the knife and, and there is a lamb, excuse me, there is a ram provided in the thicket. And, and so interesting to me that, that when Isaac says, God, uh, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says to his own son, he says, God will provide himself a lamb. But in the thickets caught, there is a ram, an acceptable sacrifice. It, it would work, but I think Abraham was speaking somewhat prophetically of there's still a lamb to come. And now John, the baptizer, sees Jesus coming and he stops and with great boldness and I think with a voice that, that, that sounded as thunder, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What is it that happens early on when Adam and Eve sinned? The picture is presented of the second Adam. You say, and, and what is it that I get now? Something far more than you lost in the first Adam. You get grace that overabounds. Yes, sin abounded, but grace abounded more. The Greek word that's used there for abounded more means, okay, sin, it was so great. But let me tell you, it doesn't compare to the super abounding grace of God. It's almost as if Satan has been throughout the ages attempting to build some Hoover Dam-like structure, that, that which we are impressed with and that which holds back the tide of water. But it is as if there is no dam so high that can hold back the superabounding grace of God. There is nothing that Satan can do that can stem the tide of the grace of God. How do you define yourself? How do you self-define? Do you know I find it interesting that many times today in our culture, we self-define quite graphically, and many times we do so as a result of our sin. We take our sin and we begin to build our definition of self based on our sin because we think that is the pinnacle, that's the chief of who I am. Do you know where sin abounded, where sin was great and very present and very real, grace abounded more. Do you know where we find our true and fulfilled identity? In the super abounding grace of Almighty God. There was a man whose name was Sam Duncannon. He was a simple man, but Sam Duncannon had an unusual ministry. He would find pictures 
And the beautiful pictures most often of some, some outdoor natural scene or, or something that, that to him meant something that could communicate a spiritual truth. And so Sam Duncannon would, would find pictures and he'd hold on to them and very shortly he would find a verse or a poem. He would attach it to the picture and then he would give it to different people as a way of ministry. Sam Duncannon came across a picture of Niagara Falls and it was a stunning picture. He saw that and, and immediately he cuts out the picture and he holds on to it awaiting the verse or the poem that he could attach to the picture, the Niagara Falls. He held on to that picture a long time. He couldn't figure out what is it that, that illustrates, what is this illustrating, what Bible truth or what poem or song. And he held on to it until one night he heard a man named Ira Sankey sing a song. It was at a, a moody rally. And as Ira Sankey sang, Sam Duncannon knew he found the song to attach to the picture of Niagara Falls. He heard Ira Sankey sing, have you on the Lord believed? Still, there's more to follow. Of his grace, have you received? Still, there's more to follow. Oh, the grace the Father shows. Still, there's more to follow. Freely, he his grace bestows. Still, there's more to follow. More and more and more and more. Always more to follow. Oh, his matchless, boundless love. Still, there's more to follow. Do you know there is no person here that, that lives to himself. Paul uses that very expression, and no man dieth to himself. The actions of one, Adam, certainly were profound in their actions, but, but I would submit to you that it's it's no less important for us to understand that the actions of anyone are likewise important. Let me say this and be kind certainly in my statement of the same, but, but because one action is so important because we're all part of the same, it means that, that, that the private actions of one in this congregation are impactful for the whole. One loss actually is not, not just one person's loss in this body of believers, but, but it actually impacts the whole. One act of kindness, one loving gesture, one pleasant smile, certainly it, it impacts one another, but there's something about that that impacts the whole. What took place in Adam has impacted us all. What took place in the second Adam also has the power to impact us all. The universal virus of sin has been prolific, bringing death and defeat through the sin of the first Adam. But thanks be to God, the universal victory of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has the power to free us all. This is why we can say with great assurance, O death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that we say a victorious amen.